It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And for the second week in a row, we're going to devote our program today to the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. It's going on now in Santa Cruz. The Cabrillo Festival has become one of the world's great celebrations of new music. Composers, musicians, and music lovers come from all over to perform, share, and enjoy new works for orchestra and other ensembles. The festival is about classical music as a living, breathing, still evolving art form. And my guests today are perfect examples of that. In the first half of the show, I'm going to talk to David Harrington of the Kronos Quartet. It's been around for 37 years, and in that time, Kronos has helped to revolutionize the very notion of a string ensemble by playing nearly every kind of music imaginable, including Jimi Hendrix. In the second half of the show, Matt Albert of the 8th Blackbird Sextet. They're one of the new wave of innovative groups following in the footsteps of Kronos. The two ensembles are sharing the bill tonight at the Cabrillo Festival's Blue Room concert. And in the hour ahead, I'll talk to David Harrington and Matt Albert about tonight's performance, about their groups, and about their approach to music. So stay tuned. First up today, violinist David Harrington of the Kronos Quartet. David founded Kronos in 1973 in Seattle. Its other members are John Sherba on violin, Hank Dutt on viola, and Jeffrey Ziegler on cello. Over the years, Kronos has recorded dozens of CDs and performed hundreds upon hundreds of new compositions, spanning a huge range of musical idioms from modern classical to rock to jazz to traditional music from Africa, Asia, Latin America, and beyond. And along the way, they've collaborated with musicians from almost every part of the globe. To start off our interview, I asked David Harrington if there were any limits to what Kronos will play. He said that despite their immense output and variety, they have some very strict criteria. What I'm looking for are kind of indelible experiences that when someone comes in contact with it, there's this magnetic attraction that happens. And everything that we've ever been a part of uh, has been the result of a certain magnetism that has pulled me toward the music or the composer or the instrument or whatever it is that we might be a part of. And so, in a certain sense, for me, the work is very autobiographical. And I'm, I feel in touch with uh, every piece that's been written for us and, and all of the composers. So when looking at this immense range, um, this journey across traditions, across geographies, across periods uh, of the 20th and now 21st century, it would be wrong to think of you as collectors. There's something deep and internal that draws you to particular pieces and not just a desire to experience and play all of the world's music? Well, uh, you know, I, I have to tell you about a place I just visited uh, in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. My parents live in Mesa, and so I was visiting them recently. The Musical Instrument Museum opened about two and a half months ago. Have you heard about this? Place? No. Okay. No. It's one of the greatest places in the country, without any question. And I would advise everybody to go to that museum. 
the total collection of musical instruments is 10,000 from every country in the world. And, but not only that, the way the instruments are presented, the building, the care the, that the instruments are given, the, the care with which they're presented, and the music that these instruments can play is presented, is so fantastic. And, you know, it, it felt like I was walking into the soul of humanity. And it was, it was just a miraculous experience. And if there's any way that, that we could find to transmit that incredible feeling, then that's what I want to do. <laughs> so I'm sure that I'll be spending the rest of my life trying to see to it that as many kids as possible get to experience that, that feeling of connection to the, just almost the original reason for music. And, and it's so wonderful. And so, I, you know, I look at concerts as an opportunity to explore. And uh, in a way, you know, the 700 pieces that have been written for Kronos so far. 700. Yeah. Uh, probably a few more than that. But anyway, um, you know, it's, it's a start. You know, given um, your seemingly unlimited interest in music, without borders, without boundaries, it, it seems like you might have become one of those guys who tries to learn and play every instrument on earth or move among every kind of ensemble, but you've stuck to this one instrument, violin, and this one type of ensemble, the string quartet, and instead you've brought all of this music into that, that mode of expression. You know, when I was 12, I first heard a string quartet. It was on record. It was the Budapest Quartet. They were playing Beethoven's Opus 127, the E-flat major quartet. Truly great quartet. It's miraculous. And what got me every time uh, was the sound of those opening chords. And something happened inside. I can't explain it. I can, I can feel it. Even right now as we're talking, I, I remember the feeling of hearing that sound inside. And what I wanted to do was make that sound. Hmm. I wanted to have that as part of my life. Well, I think I've been doing the same thing just about every day since then. And that is, if I hear something that I want to be a part of and I want to include in my experience in my life and I want to be able to share with other people, I will find a way of doing it. And for me, the string quartet is, it's perfect. I mean, I think what Haydn did at the Esterhazy Palace starting around 1750 is probably unparalleled in if you look at any of the arts anywhere in the world and you just think what that one person did he created this form two violins a viola and a cello and there's it, it's almost like a little country or a little government or a little 
way of looking at the universe mm. that is perfectly balanced. I mean, I don't think of myself as a violinist independently of Kronos. Mm. For me, I, I wouldn't even do it. It's too, it's too big of a pain in the butt <laughs> to play the violin. It's, it's too hard. You know, so, I mean, the only reason I do it is to be able to play in Kronos. I think that the, the reason that, that, that I've wanted to um, kind of channel all my thoughts through this form is that I don't think it gets any better. Mm. You know, if you've found something, you know, that feels like the sound of your own mind thinking, how could you do anything? You know, why would I want to have a, a you know a rhythm section every day and a and a you know a, a xylophone or, or you know whatever whatever it is? You know, when I can have a cello and a viola and two violins and there's this amazing force to that sound. Plus, every composer that's ever written for the string quartet sounds different from every other composer. Mm. I mean, just think about it. Okay, Haydn sounds different than Mozart, who sounds different than Beethoven, than Schubert, than Brahms, than Debussy, than Ravel, than Berg, and you know Bartok, and Ludoslavsky, and George Crumb, and Terry Riley, and Morton Feldman, and you name them, all of them. Everybody sounds different. And composers from every continent, from so many different cultures, have said to me that the string quartet is, is the most personal form. More so than solo violin, even, you think? I think so. Because of the range of voices you can produce with it. Well, yeah, and it has to do with the... Uh, I think it has to do with the way the music is rehearsed. You know, it's, it's talked over, it's experimented with, it's, it's, it's communally, you know, it's communally prepared, let's mm. say. It's, it's like uh, there are four cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> Let's talk about um, the program you're going to be playing in the Cabrillo Festival. Mm -hmm. uh, three pieces, and I think I'd like to start by talking about this one, the longest piece of the three, Hold Me Neighbor in This Storm by uh, Alexandra Vrebolov. Mm -hmm. I think um, it's a perfect example of some of the things you were just saying. Well, I first met Alexandra Vrebolov when she was a student at the San Francisco Conservatory. She called me up one day and said that she had a string quartet. Could she bring it by? And this was in 1995, and we've been friends ever since. And I've seen this amazing journey that she's been a part of. I mean, when, when I first met her, she was from Yugoslavia. Well, now she's from Serbia. Oh, yeah. And we've shared many conversations over the years. And the idea of what it is to be an immigrant to our country, the idea of war and its influence on life, on music, on instruments, on culture. Well, it was um, several years ago that um, I saw a DVD about the Serbian community in Chicago. And... It was made by, um, you'll have to help me with the name, the fellow that lives in the East Bay. Uh, does great um, 
documentaries. Musical documentaries. Not Les Blank. Les Blank. Les Blank. Yeah. So there's this amazing DVD that Les Blank put together about the Serbian community in Chicago. And I watched that, and and I I just thought it was really special. Well, then, uh, Alexandra now lives in New York. And so one day, she and I watched this together, and we started talking about Serbia, about musical traditions, about war, about being an immigrant. And I remember looking over at her at one point, and I said, Alexandra, would you be able to write a piece that could explain to me, to Kronos, and to our audience what is going on in Serbia? Mm -hmm. And eventually that became Hold Me Neighbor in this Storm. Let's let's listen to the opening of this piece by Alexandra Vrebolov from former Yugoslavia, that part now known as Serbia. Tell us, David, what, what we're listening to. What is this instrument we're hearing in this opening? What we're hearing is me playing a gusli. And a gusli is a one-stringed traditional instrument from Serbia, and it normally is used to accompany um, poetry. The player is reciting epic poetry, generally, and it's generally about wars. And I learned how to play the Goosely by watching masters doing it on YouTube. And it's the first instrument I've ever learned. Well, I can't say I've learned it. I mean, I, I attempted. Uh, and of course, Alexandra didn't write uh, an easy part. Anyway, it, it's, uh, there's a certain tactility and rawness to this sound I, I just love. And it's, it's horsehair against horsehair and plenty of rosin in between, and so, <laughs> so you get lots of friction going on. So we have you opening on the Goosley. I didn't realize that was you, by the way, and when I said earlier in the interview that you've stuck to violin, I guess I was wrong to some extent. But uh, this then transitions into the quartet proper. Uh, well, yeah. almost quartet proper, because actually John is playing this incredible tapon, which is a traditional drum. This is John Sherba, normally on the violin. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Hank and Jeff come in, and in the meantime, I pick up a retuned violin. And then eventually, um, in place of the drum, we're all using our feet to create a... Uh, a quartet drum, mm. actually. You're all stomping in unison. That's right. Yeah. And then that goes into the, the those amazing um, orthodox bells that you hear. There are bells uh, in the live performance that's provided by recording or something? Yeah, there's a backing track. Backing track. There's a, a section, I mean, there's so many different sections to this piece, all some form of Balkan music, some form of music from what was once Yugoslavia. Is that correct? Yes, I would say that. And, and of course, the, the sound of the 
singer is um, to me it's just one of the great voices that I've ever heard and he's uh, he's singing from the Quran oh so this is a Bosnian Muslim uh, yeah okay Well, Alexandra heard all kinds of music growing up, and uh, there's her grandmother too. That and the grandmother is uh, uh, singing a traditional song. And then if you listen, very, she's on the backing track. Yeah, yeah. If you listen very carefully, you'll hear Alexandra join in too. Oh, maybe we can play a little part of that. Um, so you said that this piece, with all of its music and chanting and ambient sounds like church bells, tells the story of the breakup of Yugoslavia, of the wars? I mean, it's a piece of music. So it, it's like what it tells is individual to every person that mm. hears it. Uh, I mean, there, you will hear the sound of bombs falling. Uh, there's a sound of of a riot. There's there's a lot of sounds, a lot of a lot of information in this piece. Um, one of the things I love most about it is that, you know, from the very first note to the very last, it feels like one epic statement. And I really do think that, you know, every composer has his or her breakthrough piece where everything just comes into focus. This is definitely Alexandra's breakthrough piece. And I'd say maybe it's her war in peace. Mm, Could be. (laughs) I had a friend from the ex-Yugoslavia, and um, I asked him, you know, how is it that you lived in peace for 50 years after World War II under Tito, and yet all these old ethnic hatreds and all this tension surfaced so quickly when the regime changed. How did that enmity stay alive during all those years? And he said, well, first of all, our grandmothers never let us forget the atrocities they'd seen committed by the other side. And there was music, music that told the stories of these atrocities of victimhood, music that kept fear and hatred alive. Alexandra had told me that there are still living arguments about wars that happened nine hundred years ago. So human memory is, is uh, you know, it's a pretty all-inclusive thing sometimes. But music is a way of preserving hostility too, which is the opposite of what this piece is trying to do. Right. This piece is trying to to, to heal, isn't it? Yes, definitely. I believe she's commented that by bringing this, this vast array of musics from different ethnicities in Yugoslavia together in what she thinks of as the very civilizing 
um, very civilizing instrument of the string quartet. You know, that's her intention. Mm -hmm. In this piece, as, as in so many of your pieces, we hear you guys using your instruments, the two violins, the uh, viola and the cello, in all kinds of ways, creating all kinds of sounds, very aggressive sounds, bouncing your bows off the strings, you know, sawing at the strings. And in other pieces, of course, you've done just about everything imaginable you can with a bow and a string instrument. Is there anything you won't do to a violin? <laughs> well, if you watch the... Uh film about trimpin y you'll find something that trimpin? i will not do do you know about trimpin no well he's uh he's a musical instrument inventor a sound sculpturist a macarthur fellow uh he's he's a lot of things for me he's he's like one of the really uh, bright spots in the universe uh, I, I just love trimpin and it took about 25 years to end up doing something with Trimpin from when I first met him. And and, uh, uh, and so it was kind of interesting because it, at one early rehearsal for this piece, he suggested that we could just take some inexpensive violins and, you know, viola and cello and break them. And I said to Trimpin, I, I said, I can't do it. Mm. I can't do it. I won't do it. And I'll tell you why. It's because my daughter is a first-grade teacher in the San Francisco schools, public schools. And there's no instruments at this school. There's no music. Um, I would consider it totally dishonest. There would be no ethical reason for being a musician if I was out there trashing an instrument that someone could play. So I can't do that. Mm. And Trimpin never mentioned it again. <laughs> but that is something I will never do. That's where you draw the line. Yep. Um, let's listen to another piece, a very different piece that you're going to be playing in the uh, Cabrillo Festival tonight, as a matter of fact, um, on the same bill with 8th um, Blackbird, the sextet. Uh, this piece is Raga Mishra Beravi. Yes. By Ram Narayan. He's a, a, a very famous and now um, older Indian musician who um, is a master of the sarangi. Yes. Uh, which was a folk instrument, I believe, until he sort of brought it into the Indian classical world. But it's a bowed instrument, like a violin. It is a bowed instrument, and it's, it's an astonishing instrument. It has sympathetic strings, and so it, uh, when you look at it, you would have no idea that this instrument could be so beautifully resonant. And actually what Ram Narayan accomplished was that uh, when he started out, the instrument was an accompanimental instrument for, for singers. Sort of a drony kind of instrument? Well, or, uh, you know, would play melodies along with singers. Ah, but it was a popular instrument. Yes. It wasn't considered classical, yeah? Yes, and basically through his artistry, he elevated this instrument to an incredible place. And I first heard uh, Sarangi in the 1970s. Um, and then over the years, the more I heard Hank, 
our violist playing, the more I began to think that Hank and Ram Narayan were, were like blood brothers, but they didn't know it. And so I, I began to think of, of the viola and the way Hank plays the viola as being related to the sarangi and the way Ram Narayan plays the sarangi. Hmm. And so at a certain point, it just seemed very natural. We would play music of uh, Ram Narayan and that there would be this solo that Hank would play. So you've adapted one of his, um, his ragas for string quartet, and uh, we can hear a little piece of that right now. And that's just a small sampling of uh, Raga Mishra Bhairavi by the Kronos Quartet. And I'm speaking to David Harrington of the Kronos Quartet today. That's off of your CD, uh, Floodplain? Yes. Just like the other one we heard, Hold Me Neighbor in This Storm. You, did you have to retune your instruments to play this? Um? No, but actually what you might not know is that um, John is playing a tambura. Uh, that's a drone instrument. It's a drone yeah. instrument, yes. And I'm playing a shruti box. A uh, harmonium? Yes. Yeah, the little squeeze box. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got this this one that looks like it's falling apart. I, I love to play it. It's, it's so much fun. And, you squeeze uh, the bellows with one hand and play the keyboard with the other. Well, in this case, you, you squeeze both. Uh, it's got these little um, little buttons or dials inside, and you can dial up the note that you want to play. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Wow. And, uh, so we decided to create a sound that we felt worked against or in support of what Hank is doing. Great. The two pieces we've talked about so far, we have recordings from your floodplain CD. The third piece you're playing, uh, and not necessarily in that order, it has not been commercially recorded, so we can only describe it. But uh, you can tell us a little bit about this one. It's called Ahem. Yes, Ahem which means homeward, is by Bryce Desner. Bryce is a member of The National. He's a fantastic guitarist. Rock group. Yes. Yeah. And um, this piece is total energy from note one to note 10,048 or however <laughs> notes there are. There's a lot of notes. It's in a, yes, it's restless. It's just, it never settles down. Right, yeah. right. There's a sense of movement throughout it. There is, yeah, yeah. Mm, and it is a story of a migration. Well, a lot of what I do 
every day is to talk to composers from all over the world. And I've been doing this now f since I was a kid. And what I want is I want each composer's best piece. Oh. That's what I want. Oh, that's all. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> and I get into all sorts of discussions about all sorts of things with composers. Well, Bryce and I were talking once about family. And he mentioned his family's migration from Poland to Brooklyn. And at that point, his grandmother was still alive. And somehow the kind of, I guess I would say, the, the essence of that conversation ended up being like a little grain of sand in the, in the oyster of Bryce's imagination, we could say. Anyway, um, that resulted in Achim. And um, it's dedicated to Bryce's grandmother. And I think another thing that we were talking about was the fact that we were, Kronos was actually going to be playing in Poland in the hometown of Bryce's family. Lodz? Wuch. <laughs> Sorry, I, I knew Wuch. I would say it wrong. <laughs> I know. I shouldn't have even <laughs> attempted it. <laughs> I've said it wrong so many times. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Wuch, we were playing Wuch. in Wuch. And, uh, Spelled L-O-D-Z, but that's pronounced right. Wuch. That's right. And, uh, and so it seemed like it would be you know, one of those moments where you, you get to take something back. I remember I felt that way when we played Piazzolla's music in Buenos Aires. Mm. This was after Piazzolla had died and uh, we were playing in Teatro Cologne, which is one of the incredible places to play music. There were about five stories to the Teatro Cologne. And so when you walk out on the stage, you feel like... Um, God herself is applauding. Mm. <laughs> it's just raining down. and It's a fantastic sound. Anyway, to play Piazzolla's music there for that audience in that place, it really did feel like we'd brought this music home. And I've, I've felt that like when we played Goretzky's music in Poland, when we've played Schnitka in, in Russia, when we, you know, when we've played... Uh, uh, when we played uh, Howl with Allen Ginsberg in North Beach, mm. you know, uh, mm. there have been these, these moments that have been so magical. Uh, well, that was one of them, playing Bryce's piece in Wuj. And uh, Achem means homeward in Yiddish. Yes, so it does. It all fits together very nicely. Kronos yeah. has influenced an entire generation of musicians. I mean, it has inspired them. I've talked to a number of them myself. Um, Michael Hurst, who you've been recording with recently uh, of One Ring Zero, has said that, you know, Kronos was, you know, absolutely part of his reason for becoming a musician. Um, the folks in Eighth Blackbird, the ones that I've spoken to, say Kronos, of course, was a huge influence. What's it feel like to have, you know, <laughs> had that kind of... Um, it had that kind of effect on other musicians. Well, you know, it makes me want to try to make 
a really good note the next time I pull out the violin. <laughs> you know, I mean, to me, to me, musicians, uh, you know, we're all in the same same situation, and that is, we have these instruments, we have things in our imagination, we have events in our life that create sounds inside, and what we're all looking for are those incredible moments, you know, that where, you know, you get a shiver in your back when you even think about them. That's what we're, that's what we're trying to make for ourselves, for our audience, for our families, friends. Um, and, you know, I feel I'm only as good as the last note I played. I, I think that, don't they say that about baseball players? You know, there's a lot of similarities. Mm. You know, you, you go up there and you, you want, mm. you know, and if you try too hard, you know, you're not going to hit that home run. And, and, you know, I can count on the fingers of one hand the moments in the last 37 years where I've made a sound that I was absolutely happy with seriously i'd say there are about four times maybe four when i felt like there was a sound i had never heard come out of my instrument before and where i felt the bar got raised and i raised it myself and those are moments you know i'm i'm hoping i'll get another one of those tonight you know i'd love it but if you try too hard you're probably not going to get it but but to me the the thrust of being a musician is it's a way of life it's a you know they call some things a calling for me it's it's a magnetic thing you know Mm. and i'm looking for that music that pulls me and i'm looking for a sound out of that violin over there that explains the universe to me first. <laughs> and, um, you know, maybe we'll find it. I hope I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you are too. <laughs> Thank you, David. My pleasure. David Harrington, violinist and founder of the Kronos Quartet. Kronos will be performing at the Santa Cruz Civic Auditorium tonight, August 8th at 8 p.m., The concert is part of the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music, and you can learn more by going to cabrillomusic.org or calling the City of Santa Cruz box office at 831-420-5260. Tonight's program includes not only Kronos, but also the groundbreaking sextet, Eighth Blackbird. Eighth Blackbird was founded in 1996 and has won widespread acclaim. In 2008, they also won a Grammy for their CD, Strange Imaginary Animals. They've inspired a number of new works by some of today's foremost composers, including Jennifer Higdon, whose concerto On a Wire was written for 8th Blackbird. They performed it this past Friday at the Cabrillo Festival. And for this second half of our show today, I'm going to be joined by Matt Albert, violinist and violist for the group. He'll talk about their music and tonight's performance. Matt, welcome. Thank you, Robert. It's good to be here. 8th Blackbird. Let's go back to the beginning. Okay. All six of you were Oberlin Conservatory students? Yes, we were all students at Oberlin in the mid-90s, and we were, in fact, all playing in their contemporary music ensemble uh, conducted by Tim Weiss. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, he uh, had a really great ensemble at the time. The contemporary music ensemble was kind of 
viewed as an elite ensemble that you could get into and there would only be one or two players on a part and you'd do really interesting stuff. He then had a vision that he wanted to kind of handpick six players who would rehearse additionally outside of the contemporary music ensemble and do another subset of repertoire for that instrumentation. And by that instrumentation, I mean flute, clarinet, violin, cello, percussion, and piano. Uh, and so he handpicked some people. And over a year or so, some of those people left and did other things and some other people came in. And by the by January of 96, it was the original six members of Eighth Blackbird. We entered some competitions, did well in them, uh, talked about grad school, realized that while we had some plans, we all really liked what we were doing and wanted to keep doing it. So made plans to get back together after a year or so and try it out for a couple years. After college. Yeah. Now, um, sextets, unlike, say, string quartets, right. don't have a, a strict formula for, for instrumentation, do they? I mean... You know, we know what a string quartet right. is. It's always the same. It's always two violins, a viola, and a cello. Right. But a sextet can be any combination of instruments. There's certainly, it? I mean, I, I think that's one of the interesting things about 20th century music and now 21st century music is the variety of combinations that composers will write for. However, starting in the late 60s with a group called the Fires of London that Peter Maxwell Davies uh, was one of the founders of, uh, there was this kind of typical instrumentation, these two winds, two strings, percussion, and piano. It's also the instrumentation for Puro Lunaire that Arnold Schoenberg wrote uh, in 1912. Uh, in that, there's a singer and there's no percussionist. But starting in the late 60s and then the 70s and 80s, a lot of composers started to write for this sextet instrumentation. So we found that by the mid-90s when we were when we were starting and, and talking about a body of repertoire, that, that it was easy to find hundreds of pieces for this specific instrumentation. Hundreds. Okay, so oh, a very yeah. pragmatic decision. If you're going to be a small ensemble, choose one for which there's a lot of literature. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it worked out pretty well for us. It was, it was an ensemble for which there was a lot of literature, but not a lot of groups uh -huh. playing with that oh, combination. even better. <laughs> Why don't you describe the instruments and, and the players in your group? Sure. Uh, Tim Munro is our flutist, so he's usually doubling on, besides regular flute, he's got piccolo and alto flute. Michael McAfee plays clarinets, clarinet and bass clarinet. Uh, my name is Matt Albert, and I play violin and viola in the group. Nick Fotinos uh, is our cellist. Matthew Duval plays percussion, which could be anything from a keyboard instrument like a marimba or a vibraphone to a set of drums or handheld percussion. And Lisa Kaplan is our pianist. Aside from brass, you have almost all the, the sounds that an orchestra has. Right. It's very much treated like a small orchestra when some composers write for it. Others highlight the chamber music or soloistic aspects of those instruments. But there is a much greater variety of timbres inherent in this mixed sextet than, say, in a string quartet, mm -hmm. which also has a really wide variety of timbres, mm -hmm. but they're all in the string world. So I'd like to play an example of your music that, that displays that wide range of sounds you just described, and this one is called um, Zaka. It is composed by Jennifer Higdon, yes. who is uh, one of the featured composers at this year's Cabrillo Festival. In fact, uh, she composed the uh, piece you guys played on opening night on a wire, and Jennifer's been at the Cabrillo Festival on and off for a number of years. Why don't you tell us what Zaka is? What's that word refer to? Zaka is a made-up word, I think, that Jennifer uh, just used to describe the piece that she had written for us. Uh, the piece is a crazy ex exploration of us playing our instruments in typical and atypical manners. At the beginning of the piece, when you hear Michael, our clarinetist, what he's actually done is he's taken 
the reed off of his clarinet and the mouthpiece off, and he's just popping the top, open top of the clarinet with the palm of his hand. So you hear this kind of throughout the piece, and that's the clarinet there. Uh, Matthew's bowing some cymbals. Lisa is stopping notes inside the piano with one hand while playing the keyboard with the other. There's a really crazy variety of sounds that she jumps back and forth from throughout this piece. It's one of our favorite pieces, and and we really enjoy playing it. Mm. Let's hear a little bit of Zaka then. That was the opening of a composition called Zaka by Jennifer Higdon and played by 8th Blackbird, the sextet, whose violinist and violist is my guest today, Matt Albert. Matt, did you guys, when you set out at the beginning, uh, first in that new music ensemble at Oberlin Conservatory and then on your own after college, uh, did you guys have this kind of experimentation in mind from the beginning? I think that we were always open to this kind of experimentation on our instruments. We all studied in the Western classical tradition at Oberlin. And so I think that one of our major skills, both as individuals and as a group, is that we learned how to play our instruments beautifully with a warm sound. And and we learned the romantic repertoire. And we know that kind of sound. And that's home to us. So even when we're playing these crazy sounds like Jennifer has asked us to play, and we're completely happy to play those kinds of sounds, we kind of have our ear tuned to how do these sounds get produced in the best possible manner? It's not about making ugly sounds, actually. Crazy, yes. <laughs> ugly, only sometimes. <laughs> oh, I never would have said ugly. <laughs> Good. Although I did hear Marin Alsop in a rehearsal recently, one of the open rehearsals at the Cabrillo Festival, um, say to the um, orchestra, now don't make this sound pretty. It's not supposed yes. to sound pretty. Yes. It wasn't one of your pieces. but uh, uh, Right. I can't remember what piece that was, too. But there's, I think that that is a tool that you should mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. in your toolbox. Um, what I'm trying to say is that when you think of a string quartet and you think of kind of their sense of home, their sound as a sense of home, it is a very warm and lush sound. As a new music group, we have tried to start from that same sense of home so that our sound begins from a romantic kind of lush, warm sound. And then you make choices to contrast that Mm -hmm. throughout pieces, Mm -hmm. whatever fits each particular piece and what every composer intends from from their music. We had a teacher, I think it was at Oberlin, who said that when you're starting any piece of new music, start out by playing it like it's Brahms. Uh-huh. And then go from there. Uh-huh. And I found that whether I'm doing Elliot Carter or Jennifer Higdon or Michael Hirsch or anybody, that if you start 
playing it like it's Brahms, and then expand your your toolbox, your color palette from there, it'll work out pretty well. And when you say playing it like Brahms, you mean? What that means to me is to start with a, a, a warmth of sound, a depth of sound, a line, a musical line and a sense of melody, and a, a, a note carrying from one to the next, mm-hmm. that things don't... Uh, things don't exist in space without a relationship to a melody or a harmony. Interesting, because a, a composer might have in mind anti-Brahms, uh, discontinuity, jaggedness, harshness, dissonance, all Absolutely. kinds of things. Yes. And dissonance and, and, and harshness and, and discontinuity are, are fun things to play as well. But still, if you start out by trying to find a line in something that doesn't have a line, mm. it informs the way that you play it in a way that I think... Uh, brings the audience in to the piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives them a sense of, oh, this isn't something crazy and foreign, but it's related to something else that I know, and it's going somewhere else with that. Mm. That's what we like about it. Mm. Now, you're on the, the program tonight at the Cabrillo Festival, Sunday night. Uh, it's called In the Blue Room, this particular concert. Yes. It's usually an intimate concert of smaller ensembles as opposed to the orchestral concerts with Kronos Quartet. Yes. W- was Kronos important for you guys starting out in the 1990s as an example chronos dates back to the to the 70s and of course right. they've completely i want to say expanded the the repertoire of classical ensembles or maybe blown it out of the water yeah yeah i mean chronos was a huge inspiration i remember being in high school and i don't remember exactly when the album black angels came out but i remember getting that album of theirs and putting it in my 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 cd player in my room and pressing play and that screaming opening of George Crumb's piece, Black Angels coming out and just being transfixed by that. And then the contrasts that were on that disc. I mean, there's an Ives recording and there's Shostakovich at the end of it and a bunch of different stuff. Uh, It was a huge inspiration to me and I loved going to their concerts whenever they played around uh, the area of Virginia where I grew up. Uh, then later when 8th Blackbird was, was forming, we were very aware of what Kronos Quartet was achieving at that time. And so, uh, we actually met their recording producer, Judy Sherman, uh, and started working with her ourselves. And, uh, she, she recommended that we call David Harrington and, and, and get some advice, just pick his brain, share ideas, find out what he thought about what we were doing. And so I remember calling him from my apartment in Cincinnati and just I had kind of a list of questions that people wanted me to ask him and I told him about what we were trying and uh, one point in particular stood out which is when he said uh, to me, uh, but really the most important thing is that you need to do what's right for your group. It doesn't matter what other groups have done before you. Really find out what it is you want to do and do it. And I thought, well, that's great advice. I could just hang up now and just, I don't need advice anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Because we should just do what's right for us. Mm. Um, But that's kind of, that has been something that in retrospect has been a guiding principle for us. Mm. You know, figure out what our group identity is. Do it as best as we can. Make sure that every aspect of our music making is 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 faithful to that identity. Mm. And it's really helped us. Does the word classical mean Anything in particular to you at this stage? Classical, I think, is a it's a great descriptor for the tradition that we all grew up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like the way that we perform is definitely comes out of the classical tradition. Mm-hmm. We sound good when we're playing in a nice hall or on a venue that is uh, a typical 
classical music venue. A nice piano is good for us. And, you know, <laughs> good instruments <laughs> help us sound good. Um, you know, there there people have have used the term post classical to to describe what we do and what Kronos does, especially that flexibility of performing in different ways or in different venues or mm-hmm. bringing theatrical elements to what you do. And I mean, that seems fine. I I, I feel like terms of definition are best applied to things 50 years in the past. Uh, it's much harder to define things as they're happening in the moment, or at least I find it hard to define. So we'll see what people think in, in 2050 or so about what it is that we did now. Uh, for now, I'm completely comfortable with the term classical. I'd like to listen to another example of music from 8th Blackbird. This piece is by George Pearl. It's from, this is your first album, 13 Ways? Yeah, it's the first Ways. album that we released on CD Records. It's a, it's a reference to the poem from which 8th Blackbird takes its name, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird by Wallace Stevens. Um, why don't you describe this piece just a little bit, and then we'll hear a, a, a section from the first movement. Sure. Critical Moments 2 by George Pearl uh, was written for us around 2000, and it's a set of nine very short movements uh, for sextet. Most of the movements are for full sextet, but each one features the instruments in a slightly different way. They're all no more than a minute or two long, and they're all very carefully constructed with a wide range of dynamics, just a few notes, and of a very a very close love affair with form. <laughs> mm, mm. I think you hear a gesture, and then you hear a gesture developed, and then you hear that gesture slightly different come back at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Pearl was amazingly skilled in how much he could say with just a few notes, just a few gestures, and that's one of the reasons that we love this piece in particular. Great. Critical Moments 2, first movement from George Pearl, played by 8th Blackbird. That was the opening movement of Critical Moments 2 by George Pearl, played by the 8th Blackbird Sextet. The violinist and violist of the sextet, Matt Albert, is my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project. Um, you said George Pearl likes to take a gesture and expand it, so... Yes. Da, 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 da. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's the opening gesture in the violin, and then and I think I play it on only two notes in the first measure, and then six measures later I add a third note, and then later on it's on four different notes, and then I, it expands to a second or third measure. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, one thing you guys do uh, that is Eighth Blackbird um, that I think people might find unusual is you often don't perform from scores. I mean, you True. internalize the score, you memorize the piece, yes. and perform from memory. Yes. When did you guys start doing that, and why? Pretty early on, actually. We did a couple pieces 
We did one piece by memory when we were students at Oberlin at a competition. That one we, we memorized because it was a, a fun piece by Michael Torkey called The Yellow Pages that we had worked on a lot. And we were playing it well, but we we couldn't think of a way to take it to another level. And so a coach suggested kind of flippantly that we memorize it so that it come across as a showpiece or as a, a tossed off piece. And uh, we did that and we really enjoyed that process. Uh, then when we made our uh, New York debut in 1998, we memorized another piece by Fred Lerdahl called Fantasy Etudes. And for that, we memorized and staged it. Uh, and, and that was something that we said we were going to try to do with our repertoire. We like bringing a theatricality to certain pieces because what we're doing with theatricality is trying to express using another language what we feel the score is telling us as mm. players. So when we hear a duet between the flute and the violin, uh, we'll play it in a way musically that shows that that's a duet. But if we don't have scores in front of us, we can also move towards one another and, and physically embody that duet as well. Mm. Uh, if there's a soloist, we can isolate them on stage. If there's a group tutti passage where everyone's playing together, we can kind of spread out or make a lot of eye contact and kind of groove together. Uh, you start with these simple ideas that all come from the score. I mean, this has always been the, the important thing for us is that we're musicians and we're trained as musicians. We're interested in other art forms like dance and theater and things like that. Uh, but we're using what we can of those to highlight the skills and the things, the, the world in which we are comfortable. Um, so I wouldn't ever claim to be a dancer <laughs> or an actor or something like that. But what we use those things for is to highlight what we hear in the pieces that we're playing. Oh, so not having the score on a music stand um, allows you to move around, yes. you're saying. But I want to... Um make it clear to the audience that you don't mean theatricality in some overblown, you know, sort of histrionic sense. Absolutely. What I mean is we're moving around. We'll be playing from different points in the stage. Uh, you'll see us engaging with one another. There will be a lot of eye contact and there will be a lot of kind of uh, characters assumed in the sense of musical characters. Mm -hmm. You know, if a piece is quiet and contemplative, we'll be trying to embody that. And if a piece is more like a, a fiddling jam session, then we'll be trying to to show that. Mm -hmm. That's what we mean by theatricality. Mm -hmm. You know, tonight's program at the Cabrillo Festival, um, you have three pieces. Yes. You're on the bill with Cro the Kronos Quartet, who also are playing three pieces. Yes. Um, we don't have recordings of you playing any of these three pieces. So we can't you know, give the audience a, a literal yeah. uh, um, sample of the music, but maybe you can describe the three pieces. Sure. We're recording these three this fall, I should say, so hopefully people will oh, be nice. able to hear them sometime in the next year, a year and a half. Uh, we're going to open with a piece by Missy Mazzoli. Uh, Missy was here at the Gabriel Festival, uh, part of the composer workshop a few years ago, and she wrote this piece for us called Still Life with Avalanche. Uh, it's a piece that starts out with beautiful static chords, um, lots of sustained tones that are slightly interrupted by faster and faster notes until it becomes a big melody. Uh, the, as the piece progresses, this static contemplative nature gets more and more interrupted, so that still life is interrupted with an avalanche. Uh, it kind of refers to an emotional avalanche in Missy's life, something that was very tumultuous and kind of uh, uh, shocked her out of a, a sense of reverie and complacency or, or contemplative place that she was. News, news of a death in the family. Yeah, news of a death of a, a cousin of hers mm -hmm. um, uh, when, that she received. I shouldn't say complacency, but... Uh, Comfort? Yeah, yeah. It's it, news that she received when she was at a composer's retreat. So she was feeling very comfortable and she was feeling very 
in her moment of creating and it was a very um pleasant place so she was shocked out of that and wrote this piece in response when uh when you handle material that's that potent and uh personal in its references yes do you do you feel the emotion i think that that it's it's interesting and what i think about is a kind of a parallel situation which is that if you go to see a stand-up comic you wonder whether that person is making themselves laugh. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. the answer is no, mm. actually. We don't necessarily uh, distance ourselves from that emotion, but it's our job as musicians, I feel, to make other people feel those emotions. So we do what we need to in a piece. And I mean, I am definitely moved by the piece when I play it, but the most important thing is serving the music and serving the composer at that time. And if you feel any emotion too strongly at a certain point, it can affect your technique or it can affect your interpretation. It can affect the audience. And it's all about the audience at that moment. Mm. Uh, what else do you have on the program the, for tonight? The second piece is a piece called Catch by Thomas Addis. Catch is a playground game uh, played in Britain. It's kind of like our monkey in the middle, monkey in the middle, where somebody is keeping a ball away from somebody else. So this is a piece with theatricality actually written into the score. Uh, Thomas Addis asks that the clarinetist start off stage and he writes in the clarinet part certain moments where the clarinetist walks on stage and kind of approaches the group and then runs off and then comes back and circles the group and then walks off again and plays from a different place. So it's like he is somebody who is being kept away or trying to catch us or we're trying to catch him or something throughout the piece. But you don't throw the clarinet back and forth. Over There's no head. throwing the clarinet. Okay. We haven't tried that. Maybe <laughs> we'll see some other time. Uh, <laughs> it's a very whimsical piece, extremely challenging, virtuosic, and fun. By the way, in England, apparently, it's not monkey in the middle, it's pig in the middle. Pig in the middle, really? <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> and I don't, so, and, and it's called catch here. So, yeah, there's, I, 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 I admit there's a cultural separation there of some kind. And, and the third piece on the program, the third and final piece, Stephen Hartke, is it Hartke? It's Stephen Hartke. Hartke, yeah. uh, a piece called Meanwhile. Yeah, Meanwhile was written for us just a couple years ago, and uh, it's subtitled Incidental Music to Imaginary Puppet Plays. Uh, and it's a set of six shorter movements that are all played continuously with transitions in between the movements uh, that are um, imaginary music to different kinds of Asian puppet theaters. So there's Stephen was inspired by bunraku uh, puppetry in Japan and the kinds of music that would that would accompany that. Mm. Also Vietnamese uh, water puppets, those mm. kinds of things. Mm. There's a movement called Spike Fiddlers in the middle of it that is like a Mongolian steppe, he described it to us, as, as, as if people are sitting around a campfire and playing this music and just kind of jamming in the middle of a, of, of a, of a barren wasteland. So there's an incredible amount of contrast in this piece. Um, I get to play viola on the piece. It's written for a viola that's tuned lower than normal and played in a funky way. And so it's a really, really fun piece. You know, I was, I was looking at some of your earlier recordings, and I noticed that one of them had a piece written by your father? Yes. Is that right? Yes. Is he a composer? Yes, he is. He's a composer. You're yes, the son of a composer. I am. Do you play much of his music? Uh, we played that piece a lot. Uh, he wrote a piece called 13 Ways, which is a um, an instrumental depiction of the Wallace Stevens poem, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. And we played that for many years and have found the individual m movements are, are wonderful as encores. Uh, they're very short movements again. And so we play them in a lot of different contexts for a long time. And your father's first name is? Tom. So Tom Albert, yeah. composer. Yeah. I keep my eye open for his work. Yeah, definitely do. Yeah, he's kind of gotten on this kick of writing for sextets recently, mm. actually. So 
So ever since 13 Ways, I think he's written four or five other pieces for this combination. Uh, we've mentioned already that your the name of your ensemble, Eighth Blackbird, is from Wallace Stevens's poem, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. There are 13 descriptions or, of ways of looking at a blackbird yes. in that poem. And you guys picked the eighth stanza. Yes. Uh, or I should say you picked, because you're the guy who's responsible for this. Yes, yeah. I was studying uh, English literature when I was at Oberlin, and, and, and I was in a course in which Wallace Stevens was one of the featured poets. Uh, and I really loved the way that Wallace Stevens used words to depict images, to describe pictures that you then saw in your mind. And in this poem, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, the eighth stanza really jumped out at me. It's really brief. It goes, I know noble accents and lucid, inescapable rhythms, but I know, too, that the blackbird is involved in what I know. Uh, and I love Wallace Stevens because of his mix of clarity and lack of clarity all at the same time, because noble accents and lucid, inescapable rhythms are such descriptive phrases. I can almost hear those in my head when mm. I say that. Uh, but then he ends with this kind of cone-like epigram, you know, but I know, too, that the blackbird is involved in mm. what I know. Mm. So what's the blackbird and where is it? Who knows? But that whole kind of that that combination of images really I, I liked it a lot. And so by suggesting the name Eighth Blackbird, I'm referring to all those images and, and the enjoyment I get out of that poem. But also we liked it as a name because it stood out as, mm. a, as a name in and of itself, discreet from its meaning. Uh, we really liked it. And so Eighth Blackbird is, 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 has been the name of our group ever since. Well, I, I know that when um, seeing you guys perform, Eighth Blackbird is involved in what I know. Great. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> Let's listen to one last piece um, from one of your other uh, CDs. Uh, this is from a CD called Fred, yes. named after the composer. Yes, Fred Rikoszewski. Yeah, and we thought that we would we would title the disc Fred as kind of a, a, a tongue-in-cheek reference to Frederick. We're going to hear an excerpt of one piece on that album, Pocket Symphony. Pocket Symphony is a, a piece in six movements that was written for us by Frederick, and each movement features one member of the ensemble uh, kind of as a soloist throughout. We're each asked, in fact, to play a cadenza uh, where we have to improvise at some point in that piece. Great. Well, you know which one I'm going to pick? Um, I don't. No, I'm going to pick the one where you get the cadenza. <laughs> and that would be the second movement? Yeah, it's the second movement, yes. Okay. Creatively listen. titled B, I think. Well, Matt, thank you so much for, for this time. Thanks, Robert. It's been great to be here. I've been speaking to Matt Albert of the 8th Blackbird Sextet. They're performing tonight at the Santa Cruz Civic Auditorium as part of the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music.
They'll be joined on the program by the Kronos Quartet. The concert starts at 8 p.m., and you can get details at cabriomusic.org, that's cabriomusic.org, or the City of Santa Cruz box office at 831-420-5260. That's 831-420-5260. And by the way, the Cabrillo Festival is more than just a series of formal concerts. There are a lot of other events besides, including the occasional impromptu recital. The other day, for example, the well-known classical percussionist Colin Curry, who's in town for the festival, popped up at the corner of Pacific and Cooper Streets in Santa Cruz. He had a pair of drumsticks in hand, and he proceeded to turn a piece of street sculpture into a makeshift drum kit. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly saying goodbye until next week. You can visit us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs>